This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 10th of June 2023. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from the Dory House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up on today's programme, we'll have a leaf through the morning's papers from across the world with Alex von Tunzelman, plus a unique view on the Ukraine conflict. This part is telling the story of the Polish Borda Foundation, which kind of like does this project since last summer of collecting windows in Poland and then sending them to Ukraine because there are currently no windows in Ukraine because of bombing and because of the fact that the most of the import of glass were coming from Russia, so so simply can't produce the, the window. And Andrew Muller looks back at the last seven days. We learned that Ron DeSantis, candidate for the Republican nomination for the presidency of the United States, is aiming for that rhetorical sweet spot where Winston Churchill overlaps with that uncle you wish you'd never set up a Facebook account for. All that and more coming up here on Monocle on Saturday. First, though, here's the news. U.S. prosecutors have unsealed a 37-count indictment against Donald Trump, accusing the former president of risk some of the country's most sensitive security secrets after leaving the White House in 2021. Trump is due to make a first appearance in the case in a Miami court on Tuesday. If convicted, he faces a maximum of 20 years in prison. Former British Prime Minister Boris Johnson abruptly quit as a Member of Parliament yesterday in a furious protest against lawmakers investigating his behaviour, reopening deep divisions in the ruling Conservative Party ahead of a general election expected next year. Johnson hinted that he could return to politics, declaring he was leaving Parliament for now. And some flights were delayed at Tokyo's Haneda Airport today after two planes appear to have collided on the ground near a taxiway, public broadcaster NHK reported, citing Japan's transport ministry. No injuries occurred, NHK said, but the incident led to the closure of one of four runways. And that's your Monocle Radio News. Hello and welcome to Monocle on Saturday. I'm joined now by uh, Alex von Tunzelman, who is an historian, a broadcaster and a screenwriter. And Alex, this is a week that will go down in history. Wow. I mean, Georgina, we've got so much news today. <laughs> it's, it's a bit overwhelming. It really is. I mean, where do we start? I think we start with Donald Trump uh, and uh, hiding his documents in the loo. Gosh, I mean, yes. And, there's, you know, this is a story that has sort of broken over the last uh, 24 hours or so, um, that Trump is going to face criminal federal charges, which is much more serious. I mean, of course, we've all seen him be indicted for the Stormy Daniels case and all of that stuff, all of which is pretty undignified. But this is much, much more serious. And he is, in fact, the first president to be indicted on federal charges, uh, although, of course, Nixon would have been if Gerald Ford hadn't jumped in and pardoned him. So we've got some amazing coverage of it this morning. I mean, you know, I'm very much enjoying the detail being gone into. The New York Times has um, a rather extraordinary sort of 3D explainer um, of where the papers were found at Mar-a-Lago, um, which is sort of, you know, has a sort of recreation of this large, remarkable house, you know, and it's all 
it's all called things just like you'd expect. I mean, for those of us who haven't uh, haven't yet been able to visit Mar-a-Lago um, <laughs> or been invited, you know, some of them are in the Pine Hall and then there's the white and gold ballroom next to that. Um, and the lake room is, is the already infamous uh, picture of a... a a commode, as Americans would probably call it, um, a, a sort of rather lavish marble bathroom, absolutely stacked with boxes of uh, presumably some form of classified documents. Um, it's about as undignified as you can imagine. And overnight, this has been, of course, heavily memed. My favourite so far is the ending of Raiders of the Lost Ark, re, uh, re-edited so that um, the Ark of the Covenant, instead of being, of course, stored in a massive warehouse, is now in the Trump bathroom, <laughs> along with all the classified papers. Um, now, if he is, uh, in, in fact, uh, if he goes down for this, the maximum sentence he would actually have is 20 years uh, for obstruction of justice, I think. It's pretty serious. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, these are very, very serious charges and also just seems more and more evidence has come out over the last 24 hours even sort of confirming not only that he did these things, but he was fully aware that what he was doing was not actually legal. Um, and there's been sort of more and more coming out about that. And it seems like uh, Jack Smith, the prosecutor, who is, who's very respected as special counsel, has put together a, a pretty impressive case I mean, so this is, it's going to be very serious. And we're going to see Trump, of course, in court on Tuesday in Miami. Uh, he's been tweeting about, well, not tweeting, but of course he doesn't use Twitter at the moment, on Truth Social as his preferred network. Um, and he's announced that and he's basically in, invited his supporters to come along. So I think we might see a little bit of a, uh, um, a kind of a tamasha has been <laughs> going on around that particular event. Uh, and of course, it's uncertain who his lawyers will be on the day because two of them quit a, a day after he was indicted. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I think, you know, uh, saw somebody say that you'd have to be pretty self-hating to be a Trump lawyer because, you know, not only is, you know, does he sort of constantly speak himself and come out with things that rather tend to <laughs> kind of swing the case. Um, but, you know, he, he's obviously just incredibly difficult to work with. So, mm. yes, so that's going to be also uh, to be seen. Um, Absolutely. Now, of course, what he's done is he's lied. He's accused other people of lying. Uh, he's absolutely said that he's coming back. He's going to remain in power. There's a lot of bluster there. Remind you of anyone? Well, I mean, you know, Trump did once call, of course, Boris Johnson, Britain Trump. Um, and and at the same time, how extraordinary that their fates have sort of coincided like this. Um, you know, the news alerts were just, it was so extraordinary. It was it was like, oh my goodness, I guess we're at the end of the season uh, for this particular show because it's all coming at once. So this is the news, of course, that Boris Johnson has uh, uh, resigned with immediate effect as an MP. He stood down from his Uxbridge constituency. And this comes in the light of this report that the committee was putting together. Tell us, tell us more. That's right. I mean, so... What he's done really is thrown a kind of tantrum um, because what's happened is the Parliamentary Privileges Committee has been looking at uh, these allegations that he lied to the House of Commons over Partygate, as it's been known, you know, this kind of partying during the COVID lockdown rules, breaking the rules. And I mean, it appears that they have concluded, I mean, actually, the report's not being published till Monday, but it appears that they have concluded that, yes, he did lie to the House of Commons and they've recommended that he be suspended from the House of Commons for more than 10 days. Now, if they did that, if you just follow procedure, what would then have happened is that MPs would have voted on whether to accept that. So he would have faced a vote in the House of Commons. But of course, remember, the Conservatives still have a majority of 80. So, you know, there's a pretty good chance, actually, that he might have survived that vote. 
Had he lost it, it would have potentially, should the constituency, his uh, Uxbridge and South Ryslip, his constituency, had they wished to, they could have uh, triggered a by-election. So it would have been a three-step process. But what he's done by resigning, he's saying it's a kangaroo court I've been pushed out. Well, it isn't. He's chosen not to go through that democratic process mm. is what's actually happened, mm. um, which shows, I suppose, that he didn't have much confidence in actually surviving a democratic process. Um, but it's very, very dramatic. It was pretty unexpected yesterday and straight after his key ally, Nadine Dorries, had also unexpectedly resigned. And this is very, very interesting. So uh, in in his constituency, it's not a large majority. There was a chance that Labour would take that. Uh, Nadine Dorries has a much more solid majority where she is uh, further up the country. Uh, and there was all sorts of speculation that she was going to go to the House of Lords, thereby clearing the way for him to take over her seat. She's now not going to the House of Lords. That honours list has just been published. She's not on it. Um, and yet she's resigned anyway. Yes. And there was a lot of confusion yesterday over this because she announced on her Twitter feed that she was that she was resigning. And there was an interesting edit in her announcement as well in that, you know, of course, because uh, if you pay for Twitter, you can edit tweets. And so initially she said, I should, I'm going to step down in favour of someone younger. Now, Boris is several years younger than, uh, than Doris. So there was immediately some speculation. She edited that just to step down in favour of another, a much more vague term without a claim. So everybody was already thinking what is going on here. Um, and a lot of people were confused because they thought she was stepping down because um, she was her peerage was about to come through. And then, of course, it didn't. So there was a sort of complete hilarity as this was going on. You know, has, she, uh, has she made a mistake? Did she think that that was going to happen? Or has she done it to spite uh, Rishi Sunak to trigger a by-election? But then, of course, the Boris news came out and then the third conspiracy theory started, which is, is she clearing the way for Boris Johnson to take over Mid-Bedfordshire, which, as you say, is a much stronger uh, majority for mm. Conservatives. And, of course, this has just sparked so many, I mean, as with as with Trump, many memes, but just lots of lots of satire, lots of funny writing. Um, Brian Bilston, who's a poet, uh, has done his own take on uh, Rudyard Kipling's If. I'll just give you the last verse. Uh, if you can stir up hatred fear and violence to create division to suit your ends and answer cries for help with silence and then laugh about it with your friends. If you can stretch this country to its limits or until it's you've had your fun, that yours is this land and everything that's in it. And as you wished, you'll be PM, my son. <laughs> <laughs> well, a crucial part of his resignation statement, of course, was saying, I'm leaving the House of Commons for now. Mm. So he clearly hasn't given up on a comeback, but my goodness, I think it'll be a long road from this point. I'll be back. <laughs> um, I just want to have a look a little bit further abroad because there are some leaders who probably should go and aren't. Uh, I'm looking specifically here at South Africa and Al Jazeera had a really interesting opinion piece saying that the government in Pretoria is struggling not only to provide for South Africans, we know that they're in economic chaos right now, electric no electricity, water problems also, um, but they're also um, not fulfilling the country's long-standing commitments to its neighbours and that's its relationship with uh, Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe, whereby uh, they were muting earlier this week that they would cancel visas for Zimbabweans working in South Africa. Now, that would trigger around about 180,000 people leaving South Africa, going back to Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe is a remittance economy, so uh, suddenly all, all those funds have gone. Uh, had that happened, along with their, descend with their dependents, so you're talking maybe 2 million people going back, yeah. um, in the same week that the Zimbabwe dollar crashed utterly it's 
on the floor right now. Uh, and Al Jazeera has a very interesting take that, that basically the ANC and ZANU-PF, the ruling party in Zimbabwe, are very much kind of in bed together. This is being done to protect them. Absolutely. I mean, it's a really insightful, interesting piece and I think also kind of lays out just how much trouble South Africa is in, which, as the piece says was not really predictable 15 years ago that people are now actually talking about the words failed state, which is really scary. I mean, that has really moved on. You know, some of the statistics in there, you know, talking about a 32.9% unemployment rate. I mean, that is overwhelming, especially, as you say, when you've got remittance economies and so forth all around there. That is really, really dangerous. And of course, you mentioned the power cuts. The corruption is absolutely huge. But of course, Zimbabwe also has that problem right at the top. I mean, mm. you know, the president of Zimbabwe um, and his wife and various advisors have been heavily implicated in corruption scandals as well. As you say, at the moment, it seems that they're sort of holding on by being in bed together. But as this article raises, this, you know, if one goes then actually what happens to everybody around it? And I think, you know, this really lays bare how interconnected those economies and societies now are. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, the other big story that is always around us at the moment is Ukraine. Uh, And what we've done is take a different look at it. So this week, uh, Poetics of Necessity, that's Poland's pavilion at the London Design Biennale, was announced as the winner for this year's best overall contribution. New forms of collaboration are at the centre of this year's Polish pavilion. It explores Poland and Ukraine's relationships since the Russian invasion 18 months ago. The theme this year is The Global Game, Remapping Collaborations, which explores designs beyond borders and new forms of global cooperation. So Monocle's Monica Lillis went to the exhibition ahead of its debut to find how it opens a window on neighbourly cooperation. Faced with adversity, designers, activists and architects change tact to implement functionality over aesthetics and discover new ways to be creative. When the war broke out in Ukraine early last year, founder of non-profit Fundacja Broda based in Warsaw, Zofia Yavokovska, started the Window Project. The initiative collects reclaimed windows from Ukraine's neighbour Poland and sends them to non-profit organisations in Ukraine to help families whose homes have been devastated by bombing. The project sparked international attention and Zofia has teamed up with Michał Sikorski of Warsaw architecture firm Tlo and Ukraine architect Petro Vladimirov to design an installation inspired by her activism. As a result, the project was extended to the UK as part of the Biennale and Londoners donated their unusable windows. I headed over to Somerset House, the home of the London Design Biennale, to see the installation for myself. Set in a small room in the east wing of the grand venue in central London, a selection of 30 PVC windows are stacked together and leaning against each other in the centre. They are bound together with black zip ties, almost like they're ready to make their journey. Each window bears a bright lime green label. It shows where in London it was collected from and where it will be heading on to once the event is over. Curator Petro Vladimirov told me a little bit more about the concept. This exhibition comprises of two spaces, which bonds together the very topic of collecting and reusing reused materials. So one space is dedicated to some sort of like a storage 
where you can see windows being collected from Londoners, which after the end of the exhibition will be sent to Poland firstly and then to Ukraine. And this part is telling the story of a Polish Brda Foundation, which kind of like does this project since last summer of collecting windows in Poland and then sending them to Ukraine because there are currently no windows in Ukraine because of bombing and because of the fact that the most of the import of glass were coming from Russia, so so simply can't produce the, the window. The dire state of the window production industry since Russian military occupation began in Ukraine nearly a decade ago. Pre-2014, 80% of Ukraine's window imports came from Russia and Belarus. Ukraine did have their one and only production centre based in the Donbass region. However, this was hit by an airstrike and shut down production in 2015. This, of course, has been exacerbated by the full-scale invasion. As of the end of 2022, at least 15,300 apartment blocks and 115,900 private houses have been destroyed by the fighting. The hope is that the initiative will allow those living in Ukraine to have the protection and security of windows, even if only temporarily. Michal Shikorsky directs me to one of the displays, a mock-up of a window which shows us what using these windows might look like once they're in Ukraine. Then there's a second room, and the second, where the first room is about collecting window, this is about reusing them, and so we symbolically recreated a home Okay. made of very industrial materials, very light, cheap and synthetic materials that are, that are very suitable for emergency reconstruction. The tall window, however, is slightly larger than the frame and is fashioned together with medium-density fibreboard. Michal and Petro further explain why that is. When uh, you have an emergency windows, it never matches in its size the opening of the windows where that got mm -hmm. destroyed. Yeah. So with students and young architects from Poland, we elaborated a whole catalogue of the possible situations. Mm -hmm. uh, that is, we are giving with the windows to the people in Ukraine. It's like a kind of IKEA-style catalogue. <laughs> Do it yourself. Oh, uh, amazing. Yeah. And this is one of the most original way of mounting a window. That's suitable, for example, for uh, the upper floor of a housing block. So you can put this window that's too long for the opening from the inside without a scaffolding. So it, it has this oblique form. It's not completely uh, usable in the sense you cannot open it, but it offers thermic isolation. It, it prevents from rain. Another aim of the project is to highlight how the landscape of architecture is changing in a war zone, which is part of an increasingly environmentally conscious world. The thing is, once you ship the windows there, what kind of architecture and design second-hand windows can generate? That's the other question we would like to raise. Because basically the two uh, challenges we identify that uh, architecture and design face today are how design and architecture can reduce the carbon footprint because the building industry is responsible for one-third of the carbon emissions. And one of the only, the few ways to reduce this carbon footprint is by not producing building components again because they were okay. once produced. Yes, yeah. So if you, whenever you reuse a building material, that's the less uh, resources you use. Mm. And windows appear to be very good for this, especially uh, plas cheap plastic windows, which are not maybe the, the sexier windows, not the more <laughs> noble ones, not like uh, uh, wood, uh, wood windows or aluminium, appear to be fantastic for emergency use because they're light, robust, they don't rot. Mm. 
and uh, they're very good for transport. But the thing is that what, how does it influence architecture? How will it look? What aesthetics will be generated from it? Some of the questions we try to answer in this room. I think kind of like the, the absence of, of different resources and materials and, and people and pools leads to the fact that things which are currently, you know, this whole reconstruction and rebuilding looks the way it looks, which is, as you can see on the example of this, of yeah. this mock-up as well. It kind of like opens up the whole new aesthetic of how Ukrainian cities will look with those windows, you know, being on the one hand. On the other hand, we see the, the very kind of like international Ukrainian collaboration on, on the fact as well, because, I mean, the window is a very symbolic and a simple thing, mm. but on the other hand, there are many, many more other things which could happen and different materials which could be like mm. you know, implemented there. The very process is very experimental, right? I mean, we send them, we see if it works, if it doesn't, yeah, we, we try something new. And then, you know, it's, I think the, the result is important, but in this case, the process is, is important as the result. That was Monocle's Monica Lillis there. Uh, many thanks to her. This is Monocle on Saturday. I'm Georgina Godwin and back now with the historian, broadcaster and screenwriter Alex von Tonzelman for a look at some more stories. Now, Alex, one of the big picture stories of the week has been New York uh, and uh, because of the fires happening, the wildfires in Canada, huge tragedy for great swathes of land in Canada uh, who basically telling America to quit your whining. We've got the fires to deal with as well as the smoke, but New York has been blanketed in this thick, thick orange smoke. It looks post-apocalyptic. I mean, people were comparing it, of course, to the film Blade Runner 2049, which actually looked better than New York did in the photos. I mean, it didn't look quite as serious. And I mean, so, no, deeply, deeply shocking. Um, And, of course, what this is bringing up as well is discussions of climate change um, are coming back now. You know, when it, I think when we're sort of seeing these events um, in cities, it comes up. And I mean, a sort of scary news that has just happened this week on Thursday is that the US National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration has declared that we are back in an El Nino climate pattern. Now, what this is, um, there's a very good explainer actually on France24.com, uh, which sort of lays out what this is. Effectively, these are Pacific climate patterns. So for the last few years, we've had La Nina, which is the cooler, easier to deal with one. But El Nino is the much more difficult, harder to deal with one. So the last time we had this was in 2016, which was the hottest year on record. Um, So there's great fears that particularly next year, not so much this year, but as it sort of really warms up next year, that this could be really difficult for countries on the Pacific Rim. So, you know, sort of Australasia, parts of Asia, and of course, uh, the west coast of the US and and down to uh, South America as well. And there'll be an increase in extreme weather events from droughts to cyclones. I mean, we can really expect a... uh, this can provoke droughts, floods, all sorts of events. It's not just a question simplistically of it getting hotter. Um, it, it provokes all sorts of different patterns in quite a complicated way. But I mean, certainly there's in the in the France 24 piece, uh, there's there's one expert, um, Richard Allen, professor of climate science at the University of Reading, saying, you know, he thinks it's pretty likely that 2024 will again break the record and be the hottest year on record. So this is, it's very, very frightening. Uh, it's almost one of those stories that you read and think, why are we bothering to talk about it? anything else um 
when this is happening. Mm. Agricultural production at risk, of course. Uh, and then it does generally add to global warming. Yes, it does. Um, and I mean, yes, as you say, that has all sorts of knock-on effects to things like food security and uh, water security and all sorts of other things. I mean, um, the estimate uh, from the journal Science quoted in the piece is that this year's El Nino alone could lead to global economic losses of $3 trillion. I mean, this is immense. So some countries like Peru, for instance, has put aside over a billion dollars to deal with this just in their in their own country. But I mean, you know, these are, it, it's very serious because, of course, if you do have, I mean, they're talking about um, winter crop production in Australia falling 34% and so on. Well, I mean, that's huge. And if that happens, of course, it pushes up food prices massively for everybody. So there's a huge global impact. So even though, for instance, those of us in Europe will probably feel less directly from this happening than those countries around the Pacific, there's likely to be a a knock-on effect that affects pretty much everybody. Yeah, yeah. Now, if you were impressed by that, uh, those huge kind of orange-yellow skies over New York, lots more pictures of orangey-yellow things. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And these are the ducks in Hong Kong Harbour. Yes, uh, we have. uh, There's been a sort of story that's uh, come up with. It's a Dutch artist who's created these two giant inflatable rubber ducks in Hong Kong Harbour, intended to symbolise double happiness in the city, sort of rather charming and amusing looking. But it was extremely hot, possibly climate change, who knows, um, yesterday, and one of them seems to have popped. So possibly a slightly unfortunate omen. Um, if you're, one of your double happiness ducks deflates before you've sort of even really got it underway. so uh, Great picture. Yeah, the South China Morning Post has this extraordinary picture of a, of a deflated, very sad-looking rubber duck. Um, do we armor. think this could have been a political protest? Well, I do wonder whether this is a question. I mean, the South China Morning Post doesn't speculate too much on what has caused the, the duck to burst in whatever way it has. Um, but... You know, what we've also seen and the FT, for instance, this morning uh, links the duck story to uh, the fact that there's been a sort of protest in Hong Kong, which has been a, a, a song called Glory to Hong Kong, a pop song um, that's been released that has been gone completely viral and people have been downloading it. And the word from Beijing is you mustn't download this very bad protest song. It's very, you know, if you caught with it on your phone, that's that's seditious and all of this kind of stuff. But people have been going ahead and doing it. So, you know, who knows if this is duck sabotage or climate change duck or just... Sabotage. Just an unfortunate duck incident. I think that's absolutely wonderful. Uh, Speaking of ducks, uh, have you seen that Apple is to tweak uh, autocorrect that replaces uh, a word that begins with F, and I'm not being coy here particularly. Um, so you're you're now allowed to say fucking and not ducking. Yes, you are. So I mean, I, poor ducks have had a bit of a week, haven't they? I mean, losing out. You know, we've all been saying, you know, what is the you know what is the ducking point of this autocorrect for years? Yes, previously autocorrect, uh, of course, refused to learn rude words. Um, but uh, at this point, it will now has been revised. So now, if you use a rude word, it will learn it as it learns other and words. And it will use. let you do it. Yep. Uh, let's end with this wonderful story. I mean, not so wonderful for the people that didn't make it, but for the Colombian children who've been found alive after their plane crashed in the jungle. Forty days after their plane crashed in the jungle, it's fantastic. It is an absolutely extraordinary story. There's some wonderful coverage on DW, and I mean, all over. Actually, there's so many people with good coverage of this. So, yes. Um, a plane went down, a very small plane, um, and 
you know, in in the Amazon jungle, very hard to find uh, 40 days ago. And there's been a huge rescue operation underway and all of this. But what has happened when they found the plane? I mean, rather extraordinarily, the three adults on board were killed, including the pilot and these children's mother. And these four children survived um, and actually have been surviving in the jungle for 40 days. And I mean, they are 13, 9, 4, and they've got an 11 month old, under a year baby sibling with them. Somehow, these kids have kept that baby alive for 40 days. Now, of course, they have lost their mother, so it's not a completely happy outcome. But, I mean, it is absolutely wonderful that these children um, have been recovered and hopefully now will be, you know, looked after and brought back to health. I mean, it seems incredibly heroic of them to have to have got through Absolutely. 40 days in I mean, wilderness. you can just see this, the screenplay almost writes itself. I mean, really, I know, I assume somebody's already buying the uh, rights to this <laughs> as we speak. Well, a week that has just been absolutely extraordinary. Uh, and let's hear how Andrew Muller reflects on it. We learned this week that the golden age of British exploration may have elapsed. We learned and absorbed with a weary sigh, (sighs) just like that, of the abjectly limited horizons of today's heirs to Raleigh, Cook, Drake, Livingston and Scott. We learned that one David Bingham of Derbyshire had completed a four-year quest to visit 875 branches of Weatherspoons, which, for the uninitiated, you lucky people, is a chain of British pubs known for cheap beer, lurid carpets, divorced clientele, and a proprietor who spent ages campaigning for Brexit and now devotes similar energy to whining that he can't find any staff. On which note, we learned that this week had much much more to teach us about unintended consequences. learned that the recent craze among Republican state governments in the US for banning books which might possibly contribute to the moral discombobulation of a nation's youth has had richly hilarious inadvertent outcomes. One such concerned state legislature was that of Utah, which acted last year to banish from elementary and middle school libraries books which might be considered pornographic or vulgar, which by Utah standards might well include any or all of the very hungry caterpillar Paddington helps out and the tale of Jemima Puddle Duck. We learned that the Davis School District near Salt Lake City had been compelled to respond after receiving a complaint from one parent, who may, it seems reasonable to surmise, have a sense of humour about the infamously gruesome contents of one particular volume. The King James Version of the Bible has been removed from multiple Davis District schools. This after a committee found it contained both vulgarity and violence. And we learned that, even more amusingly, the schools of Utah of all places may also have to shield the young'uns from the potentially corrupting contents of an at least equally pernicious tract. A school district in Utah that opted to pull the Bible from elementary and middle school libraries is now considering whether to ban the Book of Mormon. A school committee deemed the Bible age inappropriate last month because they said it contained vulgar language or violence. 
But we learned that even this cautionary example was not sufficient to defatigue the most indefatigable of America's modern wave of censorious wowzers. We learned that Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, the and finally state and candidate for the Republican nomination for the presidency of the United States, is aiming for that rhetorical sweet spot where Winston Churchill overlaps with that uncle you wish you'd never set up a Facebook account for. As president, I recognize that the woke mind virus represents a war on the truth, so we will wage a war on the woke. More constructively, we learned that Northern Ireland had been solved. We learned that this intractable knot of tangled political and religious threads which has confounded the sharpest diplomatic minds of recent decades has been deftly unraveled by this guy. We learned that Gene Simmons, for it is he, had been invited to the House of Commons by Democratic Unionist Party MP Ian Paisley Jr., who is of course the son of this guy. The people in England, especially the politicians, they don't know anything about the fear that makes Ulster Protestants tick. The Reverend Ian Paisley Sr. being no longer with us, it is impossible to know what he would have thought of his offspring consorting with a pantomime fire breather who made their living stomping around stages in silly outfits, striking fear into the hearts of the timid, or indeed with the bass player out of Kiss. Thanks for coming out, here all week and so forth. Anyway, we learned that Simmons, not previously known for a close interest in Northern Irish affairs unless there are some extremely subtle allegorical subtexts to such kiss compositions as Lick It Up, Love Gun and Let's Put the X in Sex, had had a bit of a think and sorted the whole thing out, as he was asked, for some reason, to outline to Good Morning Ulster. Northern Ireland is just as important as any country on the face of the planet. And you can't have people pointing fingers and saying, yeah, well, you don't have a part of your building's not up and blah, blah, blah. It's the government's job to take care of people's needs. So I hope everything gets back in order in Northern Ireland and the people's business should be done by their elected officials. See, Northern Ireland, see? You see how simple this is? We, for one whimsical news monologue, would like to hear a great deal more of this kind of thing, and not just because it will make padding out seven or so minutes every Friday that much easier. The possibilities are endless. David Lee Roth arbitrating Western Sahara, Alice Cooper getting to grips with the Salala River dispute, Nikki Six demarcating the borders of Arunachal Pradesh. But if we learned nothing else from this, and to be clear, we learned nothing else from this, we learned that the Democratic Unionist Party, or as it should now perhaps be known, the Rock and Roll All Night and Democratic Unionist Party every day, has been on something of a journey from the really not all that distant period in which the DUP banned the Electric Light Orchestra from playing in Ballymena because ELO proposed to stage the gig on a Sunday. And not, as might have been reasonably expected, because they sucked. <gasps> they did. Maybe not as badly as Kiss, but they did. No correspondence will be entered into on this matter. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Muller.
Many thanks there to Andrew. And that's all for Monocle on Saturday. Thanks to our studio engineer in London, Nora Hull, and our producer, Isabella Jewell. And Monocle on Saturday returns next weekend. And we're going to be bouncing backwards and forwards to Zurich for the next few hours, bringing you highlights from the Badi market. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>